This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Great to be back for 2023. We're a few weeks in. We are ripping and roaring. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) Um, And I'm really excited to kick off this series We've spoken a little bit about investing psychology, but we're doing three episodes all about mastering your trading mind. Yeah, that's it. And our brains aren't naturally wired for trading, but the good news is, Ren, they can be rewired. And IG is helping traders master their trading mind and take control of the emotions, biases, and psychological influences that come with trading. And this helps traders and investors develop a plan and stick to it to stay cool under pressure. And we know that we need to stay cool this year and to be the best that they can be. So a massive thank you to IG for sponsoring this episode. They've collected a wealth of information, including interviews with experts, articles, podcasts, and eBooks, and collected them all in their Master Your Trading Mind hub. You can find it by searching Master Your Trading Mind or heading to the Master Your Trading Mind hub on ig.com. Now, Bryce, we're kicking off a three-part series, three interviews with three experts, all on the topic of investing and trading psychology, how we master our mind, how we control our emotions, how we correct our cognitive biases, and interestingly, something I haven't thought a lot about, how we recover. Yes, the post-trade ice bath. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's pretty mentally taxing. It is. Losing it's as much stuff. money as I lost yes. last year. <laughs> so to kick it off, we've got a guest, an expert that we've spoken to before on video, but never actually on the podcast. Uh, so excited for this one. Who have we got to start the series? That's right, Ren. It is our absolute pleasure to welcome Jason McIntosh, founder of Motion Trader. You may have seen uh, Jason join us on our Ausbiz show a couple of years ago. But Jason, uh, welcome to Equity Mates. Oh, Bryce, really fun to be here. I think it's an exciting topic that investors can get a lot from. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And it's probably one we don't speak enough about. We speak a lot about what we can invest in, but we don't speak about you know how to become the best investor you can be. Let's start with managing emotions, something that I think we all feel when real money's on the line. If you were going to associate one emotion with investing, what would it be? It's such an interesting question because a lot's said about emotion in terms of that we need to take emotion out of the, out of the, the process. We need to be clinical in the way we look at markets. And I think to a large extent, I think that's, I think that's true. But we've also got to recognise and, and remember that we're all human and emotions are part of who we are. And it does affect how we how we operate. So I don't think you can just completely like strip it out of the process. And you just think about some of the emotions and how how they influence the way we trade. So for example, take um, take fear. Now you think now what what is the emotion of fear all about? So fear's all about fear's all about alerting us to a potential dangerous situation. And so in the financial markets, a dangerous situation is risk of losing money. So a little bit, a little bit of fear is not a bad thing. And then you look at, look at greed and people say, well, whoa, I don't want greed. Greed's got to be bad. Mm. And, uh, but 
when you think about it, a little bit of greed, a little bit of greed's not bad because say you've got a stock which is up 20 or 30%, it might be that bit of greed that gets you to hold on to say, oh, look, maybe you can go 40%, 50%, maybe even go 100%. Mm. So a little bit of greed is not necessarily bad. I think it all comes down to not letting your emotions redline. It's when they go into the red, that's when they start to cause havoc and really start to you know, ruin what could be a good good trading plan. I think if you ask me what's one emotion that that is most important for me, I would I would say it was was calmness. Now I know calmness strictly speaking isn't an emotion, it's more of a I think it's more of an emotional state that takes uh, takes the edge off our emotions and helps smooth them and and helps us keep under control. And that's that's really important when you're trading and investing. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things I've really enjoyed over the years is a day at the races. <laughs> so, you know, imagine being out there, sun's out, you're on the lawn, you know, horses are charging down the track, everyone's out there, they're, they're waving their arms around, a lot of yelling, a lot of excitement, horses hit the line, and you look about and there's always groups of people. There's going to be high fives, mm. there's, there's slaps on backs, toasting glasses, you know, heaps of excitement, you know, euphoria, a lot of happiness. And then you look to the side and you look to other pockets and you're going to have people, their heads down, rubbing their brow. <laughs> you know who's won and you know who's lost. It's, it's, it's obvious. It's not that different for a lot of people when it comes to trading. It, they're, they're, they're flooded with these same emotions. This is particularly true for, I think, novice traders and I think traders who, who maybe find mediocre success in that they're really, they're re- they've got this really extraordinary pull of the, the emotional highs and lows. And this is something I've worked a lot on over the years in that you think about that, that, that emotional roller coaster, that you've got the high peaks and the low troughs. What I've really worked hard on as, um, you know, from my early 20s, it's been rather than this, we want to moderate it. We want to get this. No one can go flatline because, you know, we're human, we have emotions, but you want to, you want to compress it. You want to compress that emotional you know, swings we get inside us and that can make the whole trading process more sustainable over time. It's just exhausting. Mm. <laughs> if if, if, if every, every day at trading is a day at the races, it's, it's not going to work. No, mm. no. I think particularly in, in your situation and probably many of the rest of the Equimates community, uh, emotions between trading in that short, sort of shorter-term environment and potentially the, the longer-term environment where Ren and I buy the S&P 500 and, and don't worry about for 40, 40 years. There is an overlap. There's hope, there's fear, there's greed, as you mentioned, there's anger, there's an ego that you need to deal with. How do you broadly go about thinking about managing an array of emotions and then potentially we'll go into sort of specific strategies that you can put in place? It's the magnitude of the emotions, which is which can be an issue. And it's also the way the same emotions can impact impact us in, in different ways. So let's say a, a stock is down 20% and you look at how a novice trader or a mediocre trader might handle that and the emotion they'll often feel will be one of hope and it will be, I hope that stock comes back. I'm down 20%, I, I hope I get my money back. Mm. Maybe I should buy some more. Maybe I should average down. I'll bring my pr- average price down and then if it can just go up a few percent, I can get out at even and then I'll be happy. Mm. So it's, it's hope. It's hope is driving that decision. Now, you think about how a successful trader handles that same situation. It's exactly the same situation 
but it's going to have a different emotional response. So I look at that situation and I'm not hoping it's coming. I'd like it to come back, but I'm not hoping it's coming back. I'm fearful it's going to get worse. I'm fearful it's going to spiral lower and I'm going to have a, a, a big wealth destructive event and I'm going to be down 50%, 80%. Then what do I do? Mm. So it's for me, my decision will be governed by fear and I'll have a stop loss and leave my line in the sand and I'll say, hey, didn't work, sell, move on to the next trade. Now you flip it, you look at a profitable situation and how the emotion's handled then. So your mediocre or your novice guy will say, look, I'm up 20%, that's pretty good, not getting much in the bank, I've made 20% in three months, six months, whatever it may be. The emotion they're feeling now, there's a bit of fears creeping in and they're fearing they're going to give that profit back. They fear giving back a modest profit so then they're inclined to say, look, I better sell it or I better set a very close stop loss so I can't give much back. But, of course, that caps your upside potential. If you sell for 20%, how do you get 50%? Mm. How do you get 100%? Look at the successful trader. It's another story. They'll, um, they'll, they'll be now working on hope. Be like, yeah, I hope that runs a bit further. hope that gets up to 30%. hope it gets to 100%. It's, uh, and they'll, they'll have different strategies for that. They'll give it some move, room to move. They'll let their profit run. So... We've got the same situations, but different emotions are, are guiding those decisions. And I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you this really fascinating story from early in my career. So this is this is my my first first year on the trading desk, and I was um I was sit, they sat me down, paired me up with uh, with an up and coming trader. He'd been there for about about three or so years. So he was you know, not senior, but he's moving through the ranks. Mm. And and this is this is back in this is back in the early nineties. This is in the old days. And so none of us, no one had flat screen monitors. They hadn't been invented. We all had these big big boxes on our desk. Looked like microwaves. So yeah. you look along the trading desk. It looked like you're at Harvey Norman. All the microwaves were were set up. These big monitors. They also had these big wide rims around them. What he'd written on the top of his his computer. He had three words. He had three words running across the top of his, his screen in, um, in big black texter. Three words were, just do it. So, of course, you know, the famous Nike slogan mm. yeah. about getting up, taking action, mm. you know, making something happen, you know, pushing forward, you know, inspirational stuff yeah. you know, to get us pushing up, pushing on. And I was looking and going, what's, what's that all about? You know, he's a sports fan or something. I just didn't know. Yeah. And... Uh, but I was too nervous to ask him straight away. It took a couple of weeks to muster the courage because I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a young bloke on the desk. And eventually I said, look, this is, this is just bugging me. I just don't understand. What's just do it? Why is that so important? And he said, and, and this really hit me for six. It was like, he said, I sometimes hesitate to take the trade. He said, I'll do all the, I'll do all the groundwork. I'll, I'll see the setups. I'll, um, I'll work out where I need to get in. I'll work out my exit level. I'll calculate how much I need to buy. But then I'll hesitate. I'll hesitate to pick up the phone and call the broker. And if you're a trader and you can't place the trade... You're nothing. It's not going to work out. <laughs> Stick to so index funds. It was, <laughs> that's it. So it was fear. Fear for him. This is how the emotion of fear was working with him. And a lot of people would think, including myself at the time, that professional traders don't feel fear. But that's wrong because we all have these emotions. It's all about identifying the triggers which make things difficult for us and finding ways around them. So his way to get past this mental barrier was to write, just do it on the screen. Mm. And he did. So every time he'd hesitate, he'd see, just do it and go, I'm doing it. He'd pick up the phone, he'd place the order and he did really well. 
And this is something everyone can do, whether you're a novice or whether you've been at it for years and you just got something which just just you know, holds you back a touch. You know, figure out what they are, figure out what those emotions which are difficult for you and then you find ways to to overcome them, whether it be you know, trade smaller for a while while you get more accustomed to a, to a, to a better approach or you know, write something down that you look at that you remind yourself every day or... You know, you, you just 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 practice in other in other areas of your life, uh, you know, using that emotion in the same way, and then progressing through to you know the trading where you can then apply it. Ways to do it, but really important to figure these things out and and put it in the place. That just do it. Uh, that same fear that holds back a professional trader sitting on a trading desk trading, I don't know six seven figures, however much he was trading, is exactly the same fear that holds back the person that is maybe listening to this podcast and is very early in their investing journey and is hesitant to put their first lot of money into the market. Mm. It's, it's exactly the same fear, just a very different context. One thing that I'm hearing there are a number of strategies that you use. So that trader had the the mental reminder, but you mentioned a stop loss there a few times and you know where your emotions perhaps get the best of you. There's like a structural strategy in place to stop your emotions overriding the cool ahead, I guess, or the right decision. Are there any other specific strategies that you use to, I guess, uh, smooth those peaks and troughs or just override your emotions entirely? Yeah, for me, the key to it all is to to systemise the process, to make it clinical and procedural. Like one of the things which surprises people when I say this, but uh, but I will openly say, I do not know what the market is going to do next. Mm. I don't know. Nobody does. Plenty of people will tell you they do know, but you shouldn't listen to them because they really don't. So I don't know what the market will do next, but I know what I'll do because my processes are systemised, they're rules-based. So if the market goes up, I'll do this. If it goes down, I'll do that. If it goes sideways, there's there's another thing to do. If I'm entering a position, I do this calculation to work out how much to buy and figure out where to get out. It's rules-based and that takes a lot, that dials the emotion down because I'm not making decisions on the run with markets which are moving when money's on the line because I've got this predetermined set of rules which I will follow. And this is something I've noticed over the years. I get emails from members of my motion trader service and one of the things I've, I've noticed is that I've been contacted by a number of members who are pilots and I, and I mentally keep track of this because aviation is one of my first loves. One, once I thought I was going to be a pilot, ended up trading things instead. <laughs> so when a pilot sends me an email, I'm always, always interested in what they're saying. And they all say the same thing. They say, I like what you do in the markets and how, how you teach us to, to operate in them because it's like what we do in the cockpit. Because everything we do is is systemised. It's checklist. It's mm. it's um, before takeoff. There's a pre-flight check that you do. If there's some sort of a mid-air incident, if an engine shuts down, you don't turn to the guy next to you and go, "Hey, <laughs> the engine shut down. What do you reckon we do?" Mm. You've done simulator checks. You know, you practiced it. You go to the manual, and there's a list of things that you do. It's exactly the same with how a successful trader will operate. So a stock falls, an announcement comes out, it gaps lower. What do you do? Do you panic? No, you go to the rules. What do the rules say to do? Well, has it hit the stop loss? No. Well, do nothing. See if the market settles down. Maybe it bounces back tomorrow. It's within the bounds of the of the exit strategy see what happens. Has it hit the stop loss? Yes. Fine. 
log on, sell the stock. It's um, clinical, it's procedural, it's, it's clear-cut and it takes the emotion out because you don't have to make a decision. What do I do next? Mm-hmm. Just go to what it says. And one of, one of the things I do which I find really inter- interesting is doing a lot of back-testing. So back-testing is where you get a whole lot of historic data and you, you apply it to your trading rules so you can see how it would have worked in the past. So a mistake I think people make is they might get a year's worth of data and they see how it would have gone but a year's not enough. You're really in a whole market cycle, so you need at least several years, preferably several market cycles. So I'll, I'll use like like 30-odd years of data. And so it doesn't tell you what's going to happen next year. It's not predicting. It's just seeing like how a process generally works mm. through, through cycles. And what that does, it helps me understand my process. It helps me understand what, what to expect, what, what could happen, how it could behave in different situations. So... I don't get emotional going, I feel like I'm in a dark tunnel and I can't see anything because I've, I've seen similar situations in the past. And it's, um, I'll tell you about this, this system I started. It was, the time, timing was awful. It was, it was about a month before the GFC peak. And, you know, you just can't time these things, you know, sometimes, you know, things happen. And, uh, and it was for the futures market. So I had, we're leading into the GFC peak, so markets were trending up. So I was long currencies, I was long commodities, long equity indices. Markets peaked, they all started to roll over together and they started to accelerate lower. So I had this sequence of 12 lo- losing trades in a row and it was a, and it was, it was, it was a new system. I hadn't been running it for long and the emotional, first emotional response is, this isn't working, I need to stop. Mm. But then it's like, I've done this for long enough not to make emotional decisions. It's like, let's go to the back testing. Let's go to the back testing and see whether there's a precedent. Has this sort of thing happened before? And sure enough, it had happened before. I could find another sequence of 12 losing trades a drawdown of 15 to 20%, which is kind of where I was. So where I was was within the bounds of historic precedent. And I could see that in the past the, 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 the signals then swung to adapt to the new environment and the, the profitability had come back. So I, I stayed the course. I, I did what, was, what would have probably been almost impossible for someone who didn't have access to back testing and understanding of what they were doing and then over the 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 next next few weeks i got a whole lot of signals to buy bonds and to to sell indices and those trades worked out really well within a couple of months i was back to break even i was into profit so that happens through understanding your process and one of the one of the cool things with back testing if Mm. you if you got access it's hard for a lot of people to do because you need some systems to do it but at least going through by eye and just plotting out your trades and thinking about them and their rules and it can the better you understand your system the more likely you are to be able to like like see it through the course Mm. of the the market cycle and not get freaked out when it shifts and you think it's broken and you jump to another strategy and you're forever jumping and if you're forever jumping it's you can't get consistency you can't get long-term success so speaking of um a systemized approach it's a good sort of segue to the next um sort of main pillar which is forming good habits as an investor and, and a trader and you spoke there about uh, you know, using back testing and um, you know ha- having a, a process of stop losses or whatever it may be. What are some other key investing habits that work for you, or potentially that you've seen from other successful traders and investors as well? That if we don't have access to reams of data for for back testing and whatnot, that we can sort of think about to bring into our investing journey. Yeah, look, I've got two habits which are just just so important. They just ground into me from. 
day one on the trading floor and they're just just so important for I think long-term success in this business and and just to clarify like I use the word trading and investing kind of interchangeably like trading can refer to trading on one minute data or it can be trading over many months. It's just trading is just means you're active. Mm. Um, I describe myself as an active investor, but someone else could say I'm a trader, like I look for trends over one to two years. So that's, for me, that's active investing. It's just you're, you're not passive, you're not buying and holding for 20 years. Yeah. The first core habit I got into was, and we've spoken a little bit about this, setting a stop loss, having an exit strategy, know when you're getting out protecting capital and doesn't matter if you're you know you can be an investor you can be a short-term trader longer-term trader protecting capital is key if you lose your capital it's it it's all over you've got to protect your capital so many people will look at an opportunity and go how much could i make what they should start with is how much could i lose Mm. yes what we can make is important that's that's one of the components in the risk reward equation but how much we could lose is if if you could make 100%, but what if you could lose 100% as well? Well, I don't want to play that trade. That doesn't work for me. So it's not just about how much you can make. You've got to look at how much you can lose potentially. And it reminds me of a, of a quote which comes – this is one of my mentors. It, this, I describe this guy as a, as a mentor through prints. I don't know him personally, but, but, <laughs> and, but some, some of our best mentors can come through books. Yeah, well, I uh, <laughs> He's probably mentor to millions of people. Yeah, seriously. One of the things I can't say enough to people is read about successful people mm. and make their ways your ways. It's the, you know, there's no secrets in this business. It's yeah. all the best ideas have been done for centuries. Yeah. Copy what works. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Not necessary. So, um, so this guy's called Larry Height. So he's um, he's a he's a, a pioneer of algorithmic trend following, and fascinating guy. This quote of his, I read this early in my career. He said, "If you don't bet, you can't win. But if you lose all your chips, you can't bet." So that encapsulates the trading process so well, because our business is about taking risk. But if we take too much risk and the house gets all our chips, well, we've got to walk out. Mm. We're gone. It's all over. So you've got to protect your capital. This is why stop loss is so important. The other habit which I think people need to get into, and this can be emotionally a harder one for a lot of people, it is being able to delay a reward, to resist the temptation of taking a an early reward. So in the case of trading, it's taking an early profit. So it resists the urge to, you know, to take that 20% gain because you take 20% gain, you can't get a bigger gain. And, and this, is, this, is, this is a tricky thing for a, a lot of people to do because, they, you know, they worry about giving back those profits. But it's, um, you, you find if you want to have a, a, a portfolio that, that can potentially outperform the market, you get that by the big outlier stocks, which run a long way. You don't make it by having a whole lot of 20% wins. Yeah. They'll cancel out your 20% losses. So you net-net, you muddle through at best. You've got to have those big outliers and you can only get the big outliers if you resist the urge to take small profits. There was, there's this fascinating research done on not pre- pre- specifically on trading but on the ability to resist the urge to, to take a reward. It was done back in the 1960s. This guy called Walter Michel did it at, um, at Stanford and uh, it was done with kids, with preschool kids. And he, he um, got this group of kids, individually they'd go into a room and say, okay, 
here's a marshmallow. I'm going to leave you in this room for 15 minutes and if you don't eat the marshmallow, I'll give you another one. How easy is that? And uh, apparently not that easy because <laughs> he leaves the room and 70% of the kids just gobble back the marshmallow. They just can't wait. Like some of them try to hold the line. They, you know, they, they cover their eyes. They, they you know, turn their backs. They, you know, they talk to the marshmallow. They... Yeah, do all sorts of things, pull at their hair to distract themselves, but but 70% of them give in at some point. And he's done this longitudinal study on on these kids throughout the, the, the decades to come. And what he found was that the longer they were able to delay the, the, the temptation to take a reward, the better they did later in life from, um, uh, from all, all aspects, financially, physically, emotionally, academically, it makes so much sense when you think about it. If you can say no to yourself, you can control that emotional impulse to do something, and uh, for for the potential of a, for a potentially better future outcome, you put yourself ahead of the game. It's an important thing for people to take on board. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, on the we've mentioned stop losses a few times, and I think um, a lot of people will be familiar with them. But if they're not, it's uh, when the stock price reaches a certain predefined level, your broker will automatically sell that position for you. The question always becomes, where do you set your stop loss at? Now, I, I imagine it changes based on the security and how much you're investing and the volatility in the stock or whatever it is. I'm sure there's a number of individual factors that go into it, but do you have any rules of thumb when it comes to setting a stop loss? Look, you're right, Alec. It, it, it really does depend on... It can depend on your time frame. It can depend on, on, on a host of things. There's no, there's, it, you can set it, you can use a percentage-based trailing stop, you can use a volatility-based trailing stop, all sorts of ways to do it. But just generally speaking, uh, I think the one, one thing I'd say on this, generally speaking, is give your stocks room to move, particularly after they start moving upwards, give them room to move. What the mistake I see so many people make is that they, they set a tight trailing stop and they say, look, I'm letting my profit run. What's wrong with setting a tight stop? I don't want to give anything back. But if you jam your stop loss up so close below the share price, it's going to trigger because mm. markets move around. They don't move in a linear way. It's, um, someone might say, look, 10%, surely 10% has got to be good enough. You look at a stock chart you know, of, of a stock which has gone up, gone up 100%. It's probably had several 20 to 30% pullbacks along the way. 10% is not going to get you there. You've got to give it room to move. This tendency to want to protect open equity leads to so many people um, leaving so much money on the table yeah. because they're out too soon. So that's the one thing I'd say on... It's a big topic, but yeah, yeah the, the, the quick wrap on it is give them room to move. Yeah. So, Jason, let's let's turn to trading DNA, which is another pillar. In other words, finding out what works for you because it's not like you decide day one, I want to start deploying capital. Day two, you have the perfect strategy that suits your emotions and away you go. And Ren and I obviously had the chance to be short-term traders or we had the chance to short the market or whatever it may be. I'm still trying to be a quant. quant. There are so many ways that you can make money in the stock market. Strategies galore. How did you go about or what advice do you have for people trying to figure out what their trading DNA is? Like how long do you wait before you go, this actually isn't working for me or I need to move and try something different? What what advice do you have? It's such a... 
an open thing. It's like I look back at my own start. I started when I was uh, I was about fourteen or fifteen, year nine, year ten at school. Dad was involved with um, with speculative mining stocks and WA. So that was that was my that was my my entry point to the the stock market during the nineteen eighties boom. I look at the way I approached markets then. It was all it was all rumor based. It was it was um, all in on on one stock. There would be a drilling result coming out. It's like, you know, there's, you know, rumours are there'll be a good result, so let's go all in. I had some stocks which would go from $0.05 cents to $0.20. Cents. I go, oh, wow, this is fantastic. But then there was no exit strategy and then it would come back down and go back below where I bought. So it was – that didn't work. But I didn't, I didn't know any other way. And then I go to university. I'm studying economics and the professors are all talking about values. And they're saying markets are efficient. They quickly adjust to new information. Uh, they said, look, there's this, this side theory on charts, but that's all hocus pocus. Don't worry about that because, you know, the markets, markets know. They're all efficient. You can't make money. So I was like, okay. So I kind of left university a bit just... I didn't really know. I, I knew I was fascinated by the stock market, but I didn't know how to approach it. It was only once I... Once I found my way into into um, uh, an investment bank dealing room, that that I started to, to find my way and started to to learn learn an, uh, an approach that that I thought had um, yeah that that I thought to myself look this this could work, but it t- it takes time. I think you know, reading is is a, is a great way to for people to start. Just read books, read about other successful traders. A great series of books I read early in my career was the Market Wizard series. Mm-hmm. It's it, the first book is is old, and people say, "Look, I don't want to read a book that was written in 1989." Like, look, some of the terminology is old, but the principles and the lessons in it are, are, are timeless. Like, there could be someone talking about trading on the floor of the exchange, which there's not so many floors now. It's electronic, so some things have moved on, but a lot of other things haven't. And for me, it was about reading that book, and I found two traders in particular. Guy called Larry Height, who we spoke about earlier. Guy called Ed Sakota. They were both trend followers, and their their ways just made so much sense to me. They're all the value guys were in there too. Yeah. It wasn't that their ways weren't weren't good. I just really liked the price component. I, I, it made so much sense to me. So that's how I started to gravitate towards towards that side of the market. Bryce, as you say, there's so many different ways to make money in the market. It's not a case of you've got to be technical, you've got to be fundamental, you've got to be value, you've got to be growth. You don't have to be anything in particular. You've got to just find a method that you can emotionally apply consistently over time without getting bucked off when conditions get get tricky that you understand mm. and uh, you can be disciplined and consistent with and then you can make make a lot of money. Mm. The whole like marrying up the first part of this conversation with the second part is is so important because you can read Market Wizards or Buffett Letters or whatever it is and you can fall in love with a style of investing but if you don't have the like the emotional temperament and the, the habits to stick to that, you're, you're going to be in trouble. And even, you know, something like buy and hold investing which people think is passive. If you don't have the stomach for a 50% downturn once every decade, it's probably not the, the right strategy for you. Have there been any strategies that you've tried that uh, you just were like, uh, no, nah, I, I, can't, I can't do this. This was a mistake. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've had, had my shockers. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we all have. Like, uh, I think like, early in my career, it's, um, we'd term this one uh, revenge trading. It's revenge <laughs> trading is where you lose money on a particular stock or a particular market and you go, 
I need to make my money back in that stock, <laughs> in that market. <laughs> that 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 stock that stock owes me, and this mm. is where people average down as well, yeah. because they can't cut the loss and just move the capital to something else. It's that stock. That mm. stock has taken my money, and the thing we need to remember: the market is not our personal nemesis. It is. It is not out to get us, but so many people make it personal. It's not personal. You've got to get over your setbacks, learn what you can if there's anything to learn. Sometimes there's nothing to learn. It's just like a trade didn't work, and that's okay. It's what people also don't recognise sometimes is that losses are part of the process. No one bats 100%. A loss isn't something that you should dislike. It's just part of the process. You accept them. It's the cost of doing business. So there may be nothing to learn or maybe you've made a mistake and had a loss. So take something from that and then move on. Get over your setbacks. Don't hold grudges against the, against the market because the market really doesn't yeah, care. It's just waste and, and And look for the right setups. If the right setup's in, the, in a stock you lost money in, great. If there's no setup there, don't worry about it. It's just a ticker code. Move to the next idea and, and approach it that way. So I think, yeah, look, you know, really important, don't do that. The other... Another another area where I, where I've um, and this is a really interesting one where where I've not had success with is high conviction, high conviction trading, and it's it's, it's interesting because this is a bit of a buzz phrase at the moment high conviction because I see funds named the high yeah, conviction yeah. fund, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I see headlines for news report five high conviction stocks yeah. for 2023, and what's not look now there's nothing wrong with having a a strong view on something and having belief that something's a really good idea. That's all fine. There's no problem about that. What, where, where I find the difficulty comes in is as soon as you, you announce to the world high conviction, what you do, you're intertwining your ego with the trade. So how do you back out of that? Where, where's your reversal point? Now, you don't have a stop loss when you're talking high conviction because you're going to be right. <laughs> you're telling the market, you're telling everyone that the market doesn't understand this, but I do. I'm going to be right. So that's why I've got high conviction. And this yeah. is why it's so dangerous. High conviction is great when you're right. Nothing wrong with it when you're right. The problem comes in when you're wrong. And when you're wrong with high conviction, it can be an absolute wealth-destroying, disastrous event. Look at the ARK Innovation Fund yeah. during 2022. That's a high conviction fund, high conviction fund. And it has been an absolute catastrophe for anyone investing in it over the last, last oh, look, about the last 12 oh. months. And they've averaged down into some, like Zoom Media is one of their top stocks and they've continued to average down in it because yeah. they've got high conviction. It hasn't worked out. Maybe it will work out one day, but if you've been an investor in that fund and now you redeem, you redeem at a big loss. High conviction has been a disaster. It reminds me of a, a fund manager from a, a couple of decades ago, a uh, high-profile fund manager, high-profile fund, and he had high conviction that... I won't name the stock because it starts to then join the dots back to the person. It was a, a big-name stock which had had a rough couple of years, and he said, this stock is trading below its breakup value. This is a high conviction buy and he put a big portion of the fund into this into this into this stock and I looked at the chart for it and I could see it'd been in a in a a two-year downtrend maybe even longer but been in a multi-year downtrend it had gone into a big trading range maybe it was a a six to ten month range so I'm looking going well yeah this could be a basing pattern maybe it is getting to the point where accumulation is coming in and it's going to turn higher but it could also be a continuation pattern where it's pausing before 
falling again. So you couldn't say, I said, look, I thought, look, I couldn't be highly convicted on this because I don't know which way it's going to break. Mm. Does it break up? Does it break down? Turns out it broke down. And he's still saying, market's wrong, market doesn't get it. But what happened to his fund? Worst, one of the worst performing funds of the year. The next year he was no longer in the job. There was another manager and they cleaned that stock out. Yeah. So high conviction, again, was a disaster. It's great when you're right, a shocker when you're wrong. Here's the question. Over the long term, was he right about that stock? He was. <laughs> he was. He was. It was. It, um, I don't remember how much further it fell, but I think it took another... I think it took another, it might have taken another 12 months, yeah. and, but it might have been a 30 or 40% decline to the low. That's a problem when you're using, you know, when you've got a lot of money in something. Mm. Some stocks will go to zero. He was right. There's been high conviction calls that go to zero. Yeah. So you just don't know. Yeah. It's also for him, you know, professional investor, there's career risk there yeah. as well. And he can Not be right, but he lost his job in the process. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, Jason, we'll, we'll move to another pillar, the fourth for today, and that is recovery. And it's one that I guess was interesting when we were preparing this because, you know, Ren and I particularly uh, don't discuss this part of uh, investing a lot. And that is the post trade, get your head out of the game and and sort of take a bit of a breather because it can be quite stressful deploying money and savings that you've got and trying not to lose capital and forming habits. And All, all I'm imagining <laughs> is the uh, a bunch of investors getting out of their suits and getting into ice baths. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they mean by recovery, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it can lead to burnout, fatigue, getting demotivated, saying enough's enough, I'm not interested in this. How do you define recovery and what does it mean for you? Oh, look, it probably also depends on what type of trading you're doing, what your time frame is. I think back to my my trading floor days, the average age of the traders in the room was probably low 30s. There's no grey ha- hair on the trading desk. There wasn't the sales desk. They were older guys, but the, the traders tend to be younger guys. But that's a very different type of trading to what a lot of, lot of uh, retail traders and investors do. This was like investment bank hedge fund style, um, intensive, making things happen every day type of trading. And that can wear people down. A lot of those guys are no longer in the, in- in the industry. Some of them would have made a lot of money and, and moved on to other things. Others probably just, was just, they just got too much. But I don't think that affects everyone. For, for me, it's like as an active investor looking for stocks over a one to two year period, I'm not looking at a screen all day. If you're looking at a screen all day, well, there's going to be more chance of burning out. If you're doing your research, you're placing your trades and then you're letting the market do its thing, the recovery is just when you go off and do other things. And then, it, look, it, it's not as easy as just let the markets do its thing because, of course, you get, you get corrections, you get pullbacks along the way, and they can be emotionally difficult. But rather than just, just you know, sell everything and, and go away... Uh, my pro- well, with my process, I'm buying into momentum. So when the market's falling, I've got less momentum triggers to the upside. So I'll naturally have less positions. Stocks will hit their, their exit points. I'll sell. Cash levels will increase. Um, I'll have a drawdown in my equity. So the next um, investments will be, the, the amounts will be smaller. So it's a natural way of recovering. It's not, not you're not on high alert all the time. And uh, so that works for me. There's, there, I remember this um, famous speculator, a, um, a famed speculator by the name of Jesse Livermore back in the yeah. 1920s. And Jesse would say that when the markets didn't suit his, his style, he'd sell up and he'd go down to 
bock a return in Florida for a couple of months and get the yacht and go out go out fishing. And it was like his his philosophy was don't fight the market if the trades aren't there, you know, walk away. Yeah. And that's pretty much what I do. If the trends aren't there, if I'm not getting the triggers, I don't take positions. Yeah. That's that's the recovery. I love that. The the other side of it is I guess when when perhaps the market is there and you know you're looking at trends for one to two years and you've put a put a trade on how do you get out of the mindset of you know staring at staring at your phone staring at the screen constantly checking the market and you know worrying about something that ultimately is out of your control when the market's doing its thing how do you not completely switch off because you want to be tracking your portfolio but you know get out of that desperately checking your brokerage account mindset depends on your time frame if you're trading over the over the space of a few days or a few weeks you naturally need to mm. be more on top of things but if you're taking a medium to longer term approach there's no need to check your portfolio every day you shouldn't it, it's it gets distracting and it becomes a day at the races doesn't mm. it because you see the ups you're happy you get the downs i'm i'm i'm, I'm you know i'm upset about that so just pull yourself back it's um, the market's going to move around within a trend you can be in an uptrend and you're still going to get movement around that that trend so if generally your portfolio is going upwards, if it's in, in the black, you, you monitor it at least maybe once a week. You've got to know where things are. It's not just set and forget unless, of course, you're buy and hold, in which case you probably should be in an ETF, not individual stocks. Mm. And just step back from it. If yeah. you, you, you drive yourself crazy. Drive yourself crazy watching each tick in each stock. That's when your, your emotions start triggering. So you don't let them trigger by just stepping back you know your rules you know what you're going to do yeah you know the entry and exit points marcus now got to do what's going to do yeah and then jason the final pillar is inspiration finding that opportunity finding those opportunities to then deploy your strategy remain disciplined everything that we've spoken about now we haven't quite actually defined what your trading or your investment approach is so maybe if you can briefly just describe uh, how you approach trading and investing and then where you look for investing inspiration. So I'm, I'm what you call a trend follower. So I use, so it's, it's, a, it's a branch of technical analysis. It's a, uh, uh, an area where you use price data to identify momentum in, in stocks. It could be other markets as well, but for the purpose of this, we're just talking about individual stocks. So it's looking for momentum and then it's using risk management strategies to minimise losses and to, to maximise profits and to spread risk. So there'll be a whole lot of rule, rules based around that. But quite simply, to put it into really simple terms, it's buy what's going up and avoid what's going down and what's going sideways. And if something's working, stay with it while it continues to work. When it stops working, rotate the capital to, to something else. And my ideas come from the daily scans I do of the ASX. So because I use algorithms, I can cover the, I cover the whole market every day. And so I get the daily download at 4.30 after the close. I'll put it through the system. All this takes about, about, like about a minute, two minutes, mm. and I get a list of stocks which meet the entry criteria for the next day. And, and I just love – this is my favourite part of the day because I get to see – all these, all these, like some days there's no signals at all. Mm. Some days there may be, may be several. It all depends what the market's doing. But it's just fascinating. It's fascinating because there are so many stocks out there that we just do not know about. Yeah. And uh, so 
a lot of us will focus on the ASX 200 because, like, what else do you do? There's so much. Where do you start? So we might as well start with the big ones where there's lots of information and there's lots of research on and we'll start there. But the most exciting stocks for me are the ones which are outside the ASX 300, also the stocks which are outside the All Ordinaries, which is the top 500. And some of the names that come up, like I remember I got a stock, uh, oh, maybe it was, it was a couple of years ago, a stock called Calix. And I'd never heard of Calix before. I haven't heard of most of the stocks which come up at the smaller end of the market. And it was involved in um, reducing CO2 emissions from uh, cement manufacture. At the time, it wasn't in the all ordinaries. It was this little unknown fringe fringe company on the you know the outer fringes of the market and uh but i had the the entry signal to buy it so i just you know like any other trade went okay well that's how much i need to buy bought it put in the portfolio don't worry about it but turned into a really good trade and then there was more more yeah it, they continued to develop what they're doing it ran 700 percent in in 18 months or thereabouts and it was one of the one of the well it was a standout trade for for that year and uh, then it found its way into the ASX 300. May have made the ASX 200, don't remember, maybe stopped in the 300. So once it gets to the ASX 300, more people know it. Mm. Um, it's interesting, look at the stocks as they come into the ASX 300 and go, have I heard of that stock? Some you will have heard of, some you won't. Then look back at their share price action over the previous two years and invariably you're going to see they've probably rallied maybe 100 200%. That's how they're getting in the ASX 300 because they've grown a lot. So how do you detect them earlier? You detect them through the momentum in the share price. So price momentum doesn't predict what's going to happen. All it does is identifies a possible future which may not be fully recognised in the fundamentals. So the fundamentals for Calix were all there, but it just wasn't fully recognised. Yeah. It's only as it started to grow, get more awareness that that side became came more to the fore, but you could see it. The ripples were in the price action long before. So that's why I love that part of the day because I'm fine. You know, plenty of stocks come and go with, you know, don't do what Calix did. You know, mm. you know, plenty go and hit the stop loss and, uh, you know, cause a loss. But they don't matter because you only need a handful of the Calix type stocks each each year, and you get a market beating portfolio. That's yeah, that's what I do. That's why that's what I'm fascinated about. Yeah, that's great. Obviously, your algorithm isn't uh, something that people can access online, but I'm sure there's a number of resources and tools online that, that people can access, and it can help them. Uh, stock screeners and the like to look at, you know, price momentum and to filter out. Uh, just the stocks that are, do have momentum. Are there any particular online resources that you found particularly helpful or that you re- recommend to other people? If someone said, look, just give me one one technical indicator that I could use that might be able to help me because mm. there's like a million and one technical mm. indicators and most of them just confuse me. I don't yeah. know what's going on. You know, there's lines everywhere. And uh, <laughs> if you said, just give me one, I'd say, okay, use a 100-day moving average doesn't okay. get any simpler than that. A moving average, for anyone who doesn't know, it's simply the average price over the last 100 days. Tomorrow will come along, we'll drop off the, the 100th day and we'll bring in the new day and that will be the new average. So you get a smooth line rather than a share price, which, uh, you know, zigs and zags its way. The moving average is, is smooth. It's um, uh, readily accessible. There, You can get them on any charting service, which is free online. Um, something like Trading View or Big Charts, just go there, put on like a hundred days. Not magic. None of these indicators are magic. You could use a fifty day or a two hundred day, but you you need something. Yeah. You need something. And even if you're a diehard value investor, which is completely fine, the moving average can just help with 
helping you gauge the temperature of the market. So you might have a great value play, but the share price is below the moving average. So that's just telling you that it may not be the time to deploy your capital into that stock. Maybe wait for the share price to start to move back above the moving average. Because all the bad stuff tends to happen below the, when a share price is below the moving average and vice versa when it's above, the good stuff happens. Um, my, one of my favourite value investors is Jeremy Grantham. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I love Jeremy's comment. He said, he talks about the curse of the value investor. And this is where you have a great idea, but you're just too early. And this is where something like a moving average can help. And uh, he also talks about, like, um, he'll say something's in a bubble, but he'll be two years early and the market continues (laughs) another 200%. So, again, a moving average can help. If the market's above the moving average, yes, you think there could be bubbly conditions, but let it keep running. Let it keep running and use some sort of a trailing stop loss to get you out. And uh, so this is where, like... As I say, you don't need to be all value or all, all technical. You can be, but sometimes you can get some nice synergy by merging the two or at least aspects of the two. If you're a fundamental guy, at least be aware of things like a moving average and you know, don't be buying stocks as they are in decline because you know, they can stay in decline for longer than... Like our, our friend I spoke about earlier, you know, his timing was a great idea, timing was wrong. He was buying when a stock was not trading above its averages and didn't have the a job. Rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> Had he waited, his eye conviction call would have been a winner. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. the timing just wasn't... It was fighting the market temperature. The market is cold. Don't go there. Yeah, go fishing in Boca Raton. That's it. <laughs> that's, where, that's where the weather's warmer and you want to wait for your stocks to warm up too. Yeah. Get in when they're getting warm, not when they're cold. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jason. We don't often speak about psychology of investing on the show and it's just a, a great reminder that everyone approaches the market in different ways and there are plenty of ways to, to make money in the markets. There isn't just one right approach. And it's also, I think, I like these conversations because you, you, you can take lessons from each and every one of the, the different ways of, of trading and making money and apply it to your own, uh, your own strategy. So thank you so much for sharing... Um, your tips and advice and habits and uh, we appreciate your time. Oh, I had so much fun talking about this sort of stuff. It's, uh, there's a lot everyone can take away from it, I think, and, and, and just be open-minded. People should be open-minded. Don't shut yourself to a way of thinking because a little bit, you know, a little bit different to what you think. You can get lots of good ideas from all sorts of areas. So keep an open mind and uh, keep, keep learning. Thanks, Love guys. That. Love that. Love That's it. great. Thanks, Thanks Jason. Jason. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. A big thank you to IG who have supported this series. As we said, it's a three-part series focusing on the psychology of trading and investing. And with IG, they can help you be a better trader and investor. Make sure you check out their trading education hub, which focuses on the four key pillars of managing emotions, habit formation, understanding your trading DNA and recovery. Head to IG.com to find out more. But uh, Ren, that's, uh, that brings us to the end of today's episode. We will pick it up again next week. Sounds good. Going to go hit that ice bath and recover. Nice. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. 
This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.